Welcome to this episode of Creative Mind. And like the rest of us, you are probably sitting at home wondering what on earth am I going to do for the rest of today, tomorrow, and the day after. And if you're in the middle of this zombie apocalypse like the rest of us, you might be playing a video game or an animated game or a computer game or a mobile game or a game of some kind. And maybe you're thinking, this would be a cool thing to actually make a living doing. And our next guest is going to tell you, yeah, it pretty much is. And the rest of this month, we're going to focus a little bit on gaming as well. So in this episode, we're going to talk to Michael Buffington. Michael Buffington is the concept art lead of the Academy of Arts School of Game Development. And a concept art lead, as we get into, is all about world building. It's about creating the world that you see in the video game you're playing. And also, Michael is going to dive a little bit deeper into the basic skills needed to become an artist. Getting into art school, drawing, thinking about concept. So this is a great episode if you've ever wanted to figure out, is art school right for me? Spoiler, yes, art school is awesome. So sit back and enjoy this conversation with Michael Buffington. First off, what is the difference between animation and game design? The difference between animation and game, uh, I, well, I would say game development. Okay. Um, game design is a very specific function within game development, uh, but game development is the overarching term. Um, and animation and game development are very different. They're two different forms of media. It's like music versus video. Uh, they're that different from each other. Um, there are certain things that we do in animation uh, that we also do in game development but there's a lot of things that we don't do. And the reason why is because the end result or the end product that we're looking for is different. In animation, what we're looking to get is a film that viewers can passively engage with and enjoy and be entertained by. Um, but in game development, the end result is a game that the user actively engages with and ultimately the goal is for them to be entertained, but they're playing the game and they're making their own choices and they're carving out their own path. So it's a very different medium uh, when you're talking about animation versus game development. Okay, so game development has aspects of animation, but an animator is like a part of the whole machine. So, so for example, um, you have uh, animation within game development, um, but it's a certain type of animation. Uh, if you're doing 3D, for example, um, you have to learn how to um, you have to learn how to make that character move within sort of that video game in a, in certain ways. Um, uh, that are uh, basically you have to create all the movements that the character can possibly do with the user driving and in control. Okay. Um, and uh, if it's a 2D sort of thing, like a side scroller, um, it's kind of the same thing. Um, there's sort of like a predetermined uh, way that the character can move and sort of you have to animate that. You have to animate the way that they might use their weapons or powers or things like that. Um, but in animation for film, the director very, uh, very clearly and concisely dictates how that character is going to move from frame to frame. And you literally are just following directions because there's no variables. The director lays out the, the okay. path and you just follow that. In games, the variable is that you have somebody, the user or the player, controlling the character and moving whatever way they want to move. So it's, uh, it's very different from okay. animation for a film. 
if you're designing for a game, you're you're a rock star at this point. Right. I mean, a lot of cinematographers and a lot of filmmakers are kind of going more toward game development and and thinking for gamification. Uh, one of the reasons why. Uh, people are always looking for a way to gamify whatever asset or IP it is that they're developing is because that'll give it legs, right? So you create your show, and that show lives within that one movie, that two-hour movie, or that season of however many episodes, and that's really it. If you turn that IP into a game, that thing can live on in perpetuity. So as long as there are people that are interested in and playing with it or and playing that game, uh, your your IP, your characters, your story is staying alive. I mean, think about something like uh, Super Mario Brothers. How long have we been paying, playing Super Mario Brothers? And right, it's still sure. and it's still just as fun, just as relevant. Um, as it was in 1985, and the reason why is because it lives in the video game world. Now, they've made animated series based on, um, you know, Super Mario Brothers. Right. They've made live-action movies, yeah. uh, some terrible <laughs> <Really> ones, <laughs> that, <terrible movie. laughs> that were based on Super Mario Brothers. But the games uh, is what keeps it alive. So when you have somebody who's really smart, they're always looking for a way to take this really popular IP, this really popular animated series, and make a video game, whether it's mobile or you know, uh, something for like a tr like a console, uh, just some way put it into the game world so that it can live on. Okay, that may, okay. Because when I was doing a little bit of research on you, I was like, okay, I kept thinking animation, 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 it says game development, concept lead. I don't know what that means. Tell me, what is your role here at the Academy of Art University? Uh, here, I am the concept art lead in the School of Game Development. And what that means is, I, I oversee everything that is related to concept art uh, within the game development pipeline. So in game development, you have several functions. Um, you have uh, you know your game designers. Those are the people who create the story of the game. Uh, they create the systems, how the game works, uh, the bosses, uh, create sort of the overall world. Okay, so and it's world building. Yes, absolutely. So that's kind of what the game designer and the level designer does. And then you have the concept artist who has to come along, and the concept artist is a professional visual problem solver. Got it. So the problem is, I am a game designer. I have this idea, I have this systems, uh, these systems for this game, and it's gonna be really cool, but I don't know how to bring this to life visually because that's not my skill set, that's not my wheelhouse. So I'm going to you, Mr. and Mrs. Concept Artist, and I'm asking you now to create visual solutions to this problem. So like something hidden under a box, something hidden behind a tree, or far more advanced than that? Uh, anything, I mean, uh, everything that you see within a game, is first designed by a concept artist. A prop, a vehicle, a creature, a character, a background, everything is first conjured up in the mind of a concept artist. So what we do is we get verbal directions from the game designers um, and people like that, uh, from the story writers, whoever's uh, working on the story of the game, we get verbal directions from them or written directions and we have to take that write up um, or those cues and we have to create something visual that represents what they have inside their head. And so it's up to us to uh, take what they they've given to us and figure out what are the visual solutions? How can I take the four tools, line, shape, color, and value, and put those together in such a way that it visually solves this problem and gives them what they see in their head? So that's your job as a concept artist. Okay, now that's that sounds like a lot of math. It's funny that you say that because a lot of people, you know, when, when, when uh, you know, I used to get um, 
um, I used to have people that didn't understand what I did and they would say, you know, and I would say, you know, they would say, oh, well, you should, you know, really go to school and get a degree that's going to be stable so that you can support your family. And I would say, well, I am going to school. And I would say, yeah, but it's just art school. You're just drawing pictures. Yeah, that, yeah. that doesn't count. It's, it's, to them, it was like what little kids did, right? Um, how, how are you going to support a family? How is this going to be a viable career going forward? And they didn't understand because they thought it was, it wasn't very hard. It wasn't very difficult. Right. Anybody can draw. Right. Now, now somebody who's doing uh, physics or calculus or engineering, they respected that right. because, you know, you're doing math and things like that. And what the, the argument that I've always made is that it takes more critical thinking ability and more critical thinking skills to become a high-level artist than it does to become a mathematician because there are no formulas that you can apply to art. Right. There may be things that you have seen before, maybe things that you have done before. There may be things that are similar, but no two drawings are ever going to be the same. Um, it's never going to be the same exact solution for every single problem. It's a challenge every single time you put pencil to paper because you're trying to figure out a thousand things at once, and there's no real set formula. There, there might be principles or guidelines that you can follow, but there's no real formula like there is in math. And so it really takes high-level critical thinking skills to be a good artist and certainly even higher critical thinking skills to be a good concept artist because the one thing that I always tell people is I have never in all my years of doing art I have never met a high-level elite concept artist that was not super intelligent did you start be did you wake up and you know you were saying you drew but when did it become your desire to make video games or was that the desire when I was four years old my mother, uh, who was from Nicaragua, okay. she pulled out a she pulled out a, a drawing kit, and she had wanted to be an artist, and she was she was somewhat artistic, but that was not encouraged because uh, in Nicaragua, you know, and in a lot of Latin American countries, that's not a real profession. I, that's that's like, in any country, <laughs> right? It's like that's doctor, lawyer, engineer; those are real professions. Those are real things to to really um, uh, try and go for. But art was just kind of something that kids did. Um, not realizing that everything around you is first drawn by somebody, including the right. socks on your feet, right? Sure. Um, but she was discouraged from doing art, and she still had this drawing kit. So one day when I was four years old, she pulled it out, and she taught me how to draw a gorilla. Oh, wow. And I thought that was so cool. And so from that moment, I would just sit there for hours upon hours upon hours drawing. And I don't know why it was so fascinating to me, but I remember her telling me that she would just leave me alone for literally hours. And as a four or five-year-old kid, mm -hmm. I would just sit there and draw. So naturally, spending all that time drawing, I was always a little bit better than other kids in school. And so I, sure. everybody would always tell me, you're such a good artist, the teachers, <clears throat> um, other kids that were in class with me. And it was something that I was kind of always known for, being the best artist in class yeah. and... And I was the, pretty much the best artist all throughout school, um, even in high school. I really enjoyed it. In fact, um, I loved art so much that I would cut class in school to go to the art room. And because Mrs. Joyce loved me so much, she never said anything to my counselor. She just <laughs> let me sneak into her class and go in the back and draw. He <laughs> He's still at school. Exactly. He's in a room drawing. <laughs>
I went to a, a Catholic school okay. uh, for the first uh, year of school, and I took uh, algebra, and I passed that um, barely. And then, um, and then I took geometry sophomore year, um, and then I realized, and I transferred to a public school sophomore year, and I realized that the graduation requirements for math were only geometry. Right. <laughs> and so I was like, oh, wait, you're, so you're telling me that once I'm done with geometry, I don't have to do anything I'm else. Done? I'm no done. <laughs> and so... I said, okay, I did that. Um, actually, I flunked geometry the first time, and then in summer school, I charmed the teacher so much that the teacher wrote a letter to my mom about how well-behaved and polite I was, and somehow I got a B. Um, <laughs> I really don't remember anything about geometry or even doing any work, but I remember that man writing that letter to my mom, and then I was done. I'm embarrassed. <laughs> I'm embar I flunked geometry, but I was not charming enough to not get, a, not get my C the second time around. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, uh, this, yeah, I think that's where the high-level artist intellect comes in, <laughs> right. because I knew somehow some way how to charm this man but but I, I got out of the class my counselor mrs lee um said i'm gonna put you in advanced algebra and i said i don't want to take math i'm done with my graduation requirements for math put me in something else mm -hmm. and she said no 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 i want you to go to uc you're extremely intelligent you have the ability to do anything you know i'm gonna push you even though you don't want to mm -hmm. and so me being very rebellious <laughs> um i showed up in advanced algebra and proceeded to be an absolute nuisance for about half the semester and uh one day uh the teacher he says can i talk to you for a minute outside and i was like sure so he pulls me outside and he says, you have been an absolute nuisance the entire semester. I can't concentrate. I can't teach. The kids can't concentrate. You're always goofing off, cracking jokes, uh, messing around with the girls. Like, what can I do to get you to focus and behave and stop being a nuisance in my class? Um, and at that point, something clicked and I realized that I was in the catbird seat and I had some leverage here. And so I looked at him and I said, I'll tell you what. I said, I'll come down to class. You mark me absent so I don't get any sort of truancy letters. And then I will leave and go up to the art room for the rest of the period and you won't see me anymore. <laughs> and the guy looked at me with this incredulous look like, I can't believe this 16-year-old schmuck has the, the gravitas and the audacity to say something like that to me but I am so absolutely desperate to get him out of my class, I'm gonna say yes. And so he did, he agreed to it. And um, we had a great arrangement. I would, I would show up every class, I'd pop my head in, I would give him the nod, he would give me the nod, he would mark me present, and then I would go right up to Mrs. Joyce's room and do art for the remainder of the period. And then of course I flunked the class, which was totally fine with me. Um, and Mrs. Lee, of course, uh, gave me a hard time about that, but she learned that she wasn't going to waste her time forcing me to take any more math, and so that's how I got out of that. But have any of your students ever pulled that on you yet? Oh, so we'll see. It's different. See, <laughs> we're in college. The stakes are higher. I wish they would. <laughs> I just don't want to see you. Right. Is that is that okay? <laughs> then where did you where did you go to college after high school? What happened is. Um, even though um, I enjoyed art um, and music very much, um, I was told constantly by my family, especially my Latin family, um, those aren't realistic options. Those aren't realistic careers. You're not going to have stability. It, the word stability was something that I heard yeah. repeatedly. It got to the point where it, it made me cringe every time I heard the word stability in whatever context. Mm. Um, and, you know, Will Smith said something very poignant once. He said, uh, taking the safe road is the surest way to mediocrity. Right. 
And even though at the time I didn't, I didn't realize that because I hadn't heard that quote or anything like it, I just felt in my heart that going for some regular job where I seen all these people having to go to work every day, get their paycheck, maybe once a year they could take a two week vacation, but they didn't seem terribly happy. They didn't seem like they were terribly fulfilled. It just seemed like that was something that they had to do until they grew old and died. And then that was it. And I just kind of thought, well, that sucks. You know, there's got to be something better than that. And obviously people who do this music, like Tupac isn't making this music for free. And the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, they aren't drawing that for free. And these video games that I'm playing on Sega, they aren't doing that for free. So somebody's getting paid somewhere to do this. Somebody's somebody's making money. Right. I've got to figure out how to do it. But, you know, I was battling with the constant discouragement from many different places. Now, ironically, uh, it wasn't from my mother and father. Uh, they were, they were, you know, my mother and father were both sort of dreamers and artistic folk. My mother wanted to be an artist, mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, and, and my father wanted to be a musician. Okay. Um, but for whatever reason, they were... Good they, genes. Yeah, Good DNA. So, so they were kind of um, drawn away from that into the regular world, the rat race, whatever you want to call it. And... Um, and so it was kind of because of their encouragement that I always kind of hung on to these dreams because I wanted to be a professional artist and a professional musician. What did, uh, what did they do? What did your mom do? Well, my, fa- my mother, she, she worked at Wells Fargo okay. um, for many, many years yeah. until she got laid off. And then she went back to school and became a radiation therapist, okay. um, which all sounds incredibly boring to me. Yeah. Um, and my father, actually, he was the one with the, the biggest sort of... Uh, uh, like dreams he he was a he was a sausage maker ironically for about <laughs> 10 years so you literally saw how the sausage was made i literally <laughs> saw and that is why i'm a vegan um <laughs> Um, and then, uh, so, and my father, uh, he, he struggled with, uh, drug and alcohol addiction for a, a very long time. Um, and so he would, uh, have years where he was just sort of off the wagon and not able to focus. And then, um, at, at a certain point, I think I was in high school, he, d- he got clean, went into a program and he came out and he became a chef and he ended up becoming a gourmet chef cooking, oh, wow. cooking in France. Uh, I mean, the stuff that you see in books, like yeah. that food, that that's what he used to do. Oh, my gosh. So yeah. that old school beef wellington and pate and crudite and all that. All that stuff. Wow. My father was a very interesting guy. Like he was he was very much like anything that he put his mind to, he could master. Um, he had this crazy work ethic and this crazy sort of maniacal drive toward his goals. So, I mean, if he could have just had a cleaner shot at life, he might have been president before Barack Obama. Okay. But, uh, but you know... But, but mean, none of that filtered down to you, right? <laughs> nothing, nothing maniacal about what you do now. Nothing. Actually, no, no pressure? No, actually, no drive? I, I'm, I'm probably just a smaller version of my dad. Uh, he was a big guy, about 6'2", 250. Uh, I'm not quite that big, but all of that sort of uh, maniacal dedication to your craft... It all trickled down to me. So where did they want you to go? Berkeley Law or Stanford or and then where did you end up going? Well, you know, um, at one point um, right after um, I was so confused by I just kind of started to break down. I I I didn't take the SATs. Uh, I I refused to do any of that stuff. I was just like, you know what? I'm just going to figure it out. Um, And I once told my mother, I said, you know, mom, I said, I'm I'm really uh, confused. Everybody's talking about you need a stable job and you won't be able to uh, raise a family or have a house or, or have a wife or do any of these things, doing art and music and things like that. And I don't know what I, what I, you know, I want to do because I just don't want to be a failure at life. Mm-hmm. 
And my mom paused for a second and she said, you know, Michael, she said, you can only really be a failure at life if you're not happy. And so, yeah, she said, so go and do something that makes you happy. And so I didn't know what that meant still. I was trying to figure out what exactly made me happy. And so I actually ended up at City College uh, of San Francisco. Really? Yeah, I ended up at City College and I just kind of screwed around for about a year, took, you know, a class here and a class there. Sure. And, and I was talking to my father and I said, I'm not down with this. And he goes, well, he goes, you know, have you ever looked at that art school downtown? And I said, that, that Academy of Art place? And he was like, yeah, go check it out, you know, see what it takes to get in there. I thought, all right. So got on the bus, uh, came downtown, and uh, uh, pants sagging way too low, hat turned to the side. I'm, I'm fresh off the street. I, I, I graduated high school in 95, so yeah. you're speaking directly <laughs> to my language. Right. Yeah, I still, I still tie a flannel around my waist when I wear jean shorts, exactly. just because. <laughs> so, so I walked in, and um, I looked at uh, the, the campus host, and and I'm like, hey, yo, man, I, I want to go here. How do I do it? Like, this dude had the answer. I had no idea, right? And he just laughed at me. And he goes, dude, just, just go to the third floor. They'll, they'll answer your questions. And so I go to the third floor. And um, uh, I said, hey, you know, the, the dude downstairs said that if I go here, that you guys can answer my question. Then we're like, sure, how can we help you? And I said, well, I, I, I want to, you know, I want to, like, make money doing art. And the lady goes, oh, isn't that cute? She goes, okay, let me, let me bring it <laughs> to somebody. It's just this easy. Yeah. <laughs> so they brought me back to, um, to uh, one of the admissions ladies, and she sat down, and, and she asked me what I wanted to do. And I said, well, I just want to make money doing art. And she was like, yeah, but what specifically do you want to do? And I was like, well, I don't know. I just want to draw, you know? And so she goes, okay. Well, she goes, well, well we, these are the options, and here's how you can do it. And 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 that was it. And the the next semester, I was starting um, my freshman year at the academy. And what I didn't realize was that they didn't have a portfolio requirement, which uh, most art schools did. Um, and what I'm very thankful about is that they did not have a portfolio requirement because I didn't even know what a portfolio was, right. let alone actually have a portfolio that it would have gotten me into an art school. Um, and so the fact that the enrollment was barrier free allowed me to just walk in the door and pursue my dreams. But what I realized very quickly was that even though they didn't have a portfolio requirement, it was like a gauntlet trying to get through the school. It was a very tough, very serious program. Um, and I once heard a teacher um, telling a student who was complaining about the school. He said, and, and the student had said, this school is a joke. There's not even a portfolio requirement. And the teacher said something that I never forgot because it was absolutely true. He said, it is the easiest school to get into, but it is the hardest school to get out of. Right. And I said, whoa, that's why it's so tough here. So that's, that's how I ended up at the academy. That's, that's great because I, I, I know for a lot of students, that's got to be the toughest part is you get stuck. What in school was the class that really was your your aha moment that that change in your thinking where you went okay this is this is really going to be what I want to be was there a class or was there something that you learned that that kind of that springboarded you forward to what you wanted to do the aha moment happened on day 1 when really? I I walked into a class that still exists it's called analysis of form um and I thought that I was going to walk into the class 
and wow all my instructors with my incredible art ability because I had been the best artist in my, you know, in my school, literally my entire life, grade school, middle school, high school. I was always the best. And I thought it wasn't going to be any different. I was going to come in here and just be a rock star from day one. And what I realized very quickly was that I actually wasn't as good as I thought I was. And Ooh, that's always painful. <laughs> yep. It was about 80% of the kids in there were better than me, and a lot of them weren't even actual drawing majors. And I was like, oh, my goodness. Oh, wow. Like, this is crazy. Um, and, then, um, and then the other light bulb moment that I had, the epiphany moment, was when I was taking figure drawing class the following semester, and I realized that so many of these people that were in class with me were so much better than me that it was going to take me a Herculean effort to just try and play catch up, let alone surpass where they were. And I had a decision to make. Either I was gonna get very serious, very serious about my career in art, and I was gonna buckle down and really do this, or I was gonna have to find something else to do because there was no way that I was gonna be able to compete with these people in an open market trying to get art jobs <clears throat> with the disparity between our skill sets. Um, so I just got real serious and I hunkered down and, um, and I didn't mess around. And, and that's, that's sort of what happened. It was right away that I sort of, it sort of clicked. And everyone, their, their first week in figure drawing is like, I don't even know what a, a human body looks like now. Right, right. This is, I'm drawing curves and shapes and this, this doesn't make sense. And I remember many people kind of going like, just giving up at that point. Cause it was, it seemed so alien to draw something you could see in a mirror and then do it right. Absolutely. And I mean, how did figure drawing change your perspective or did it? Uh, yeah, oh, totally. I mean, um, I never realized how complex drawing the human form was until I took figure drawing. And really it wasn't exciting in any sort of way right. that you might think it might be exciting. I yeah. mean, I used to have friends going, hey man, is that is that like really, really exciting drawing like nude figures? And I'm like, bro, not at all, man. After the first like, 30 seconds, it's not exciting anymore. I, never, it was like the minute you got up there and somebody got up there and you have this mass of muscle, skin, bone, hair that you're trying to form into something that looks like what you're drawing, um, is is extremely intimidating, so you're kind of overwhelmed, and so you're not even thinking about anything else because also because it's context, and and also there's all different types of people that you're right. drawing, and and so um, uh, I mean I'm only speaking for myself. Maybe other people have had different experiences, but when people got up there on that model stand, and I was first learning how to draw, it was absolutely intimidating. It was stressful, if anything. Right. Um, but you know, after a while, after you begin to un unravel the mystery of what the human body is and learn anatomy and and learn what the bones are and the musculature and things like that, uh, learn some of these body landmarks and things like proportion, um, I was able to start to get a grip on it and slowly but surely get better. I mean, I wasn't, it wasn't sort of an immediate thing. It took me, you know, years of really hard work to to get to where I wanted to get, but but I got there eventually. Did you have, did you declare a major or was there a specific school you were, were focused at when you started here? Well, initially when I came in, they had put me in a major, uh, I think it would have been what, uh, like web design new media is now. Okay. Um, that makes sense at the time. Yeah. That's, yeah. We, if we didn't, if you didn't learn web design, you weren't going to work. Right. You know, um, and then I realized literally after the first semester that, um, that, uh, they didn't draw as much as the illustration students. And all I wanted to do was get paid to draw and paint. And so I immediately switched my major to illustration. Okay. Okay. 
and um and i uh from from in illustration is really where i began to sort of hone my craft and interact with instructors who really sort of guided me and mentored me and helped push me along the path that i wanted to go on so uh definitely um it was a good place for me somebody who wanted to just master drawing and painting did you find your goal in school or after school where did that kind where did you go after that so uh uh funny that you should ask um there was uh so i am an original star wars nerd um, I, I, um, I grew up on the original trilogy. Luke Skywalker was like, there's my no first... original. There's the trilogy. Ah, there there's that go. other stuff. We can say it. <laughs> it's okay. There, there was enough. star Wars and then Fair there's enough. a lot of fan fiction. Fair enough. Uh, yeah. Luke Skywalker was like my personal hero, which is why I'm still upset with Ryan Johnson for ruining Luke Skywalker in episode eight, but that's another conversation for another time. Um, but, um, I, when I first came into school, um, my friend Garrett showed me uh, in a magazine in 97 that George Lucas was making a new f uh, series of Star Wars movies. Okay. And I thought, huh, that's cool. And then I, I realized that he was hiring artists to work on these movies, to draw the stuff that was in the movies. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know people did that. Right. And then in 99, when Star Wars came out, this book called The Art of Episode One, The Phantom Menace, came out. Okay. And in that book, he had all the pre-production artwork from Terrell right. Whitlatch oh, wow. and Doug Chang and Ian McKaig. And when I saw Ian McKaig's work, I said, that is exactly what I want to do. Okay. And so from that point forward, my personal goal was to work for George Lucas on a Star Wars project. And in fact... Um, I just went to the Lightbox Expo in Pasadena uh, about three weeks ago, and we were there the whole weekend, and as we were walking, I saw Ian McCaig walking in the opposite direction on the phone, and I said to my friend Greg, who's the UIUX lead here, I said, Greg, I said, that's Ian McCaig, and he said, yeah, that's Ian McCaig, and he was holding my, my painting books. I had books of a bunch of my paintings in them. And I said, give me one of my books, bro. And so he gives me a book. And so I kind of stalked him and waited till he got off the phone. And as soon as he hung up, I said, excuse me, sir. <laughs> oh, oh, didn't mean to, <laughs> didn't see you there. Yeah. And he, I said, are you, I said, uh, you're in McCaig. And he goes, yes, I am in McCaig, but I'm actually really also in a hurry. And I said, okay, I'm so sorry to bother you. I just need 60 seconds of your time. I just want to tell you that in 1999, when I opened up the Art of Episode One, The Phantom Menace art book, and I saw your art, that is exactly why I decided to become a concept artist. And I would be honored to give you one of my books if, if you would allow me to. And he looked at the book and he handed it to me and he opened it up and he goes, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. Oh, wow. He goes, I'm going to really enjoy this. Thank you so much. He goes, can you sign this? And I was like, uh, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> so I signed it for him. And then he gave me the biggest hug and he goes, what are you, what are you oh, doing now? And I, and I said, well, I'm the concept art lead uh, in the School of Game Development at the Academy of Art University. And he goes, wow, you're really doing it. He goes, you know what? I'll tell you what. He goes, get in touch with me. Here's my card. He goes, I want to come down there and do a talk. Oh, that's awesome. Uh, and I mean, that was, I mean, so, I mean, this was, this is a big deal, man. This is sure, sort of 20 years coming full circle, you know? Yeah. And, and, and what was also really gratifying about it was, you know, there have been times where I've had people that were sort of like some of my artistic heroes and I've met them and they're, they weren't, um, 
I was disappointed in, in, in their in their attitude yeah. and their demeanor and things like that. Yeah, they always tell you, you don't want to meet your heroes. But in this particular case, he was the sweetest, kindest man and just very uh, loving and very, oh, uh, just, a, just a great person. You know, so I was I was really pleased to meet him and pleased that he was the way he was. So so yeah, I mean that that basically that in 1999 when I saw his work, that's what made me think. And the funny thing was at the time, um, they didn't have any sort of concept art classes, really, or anything like that. This is back in 1999, and they were teaching people to be like traditional illustrators, and video games were just becoming like a big thing, becoming vi really viable at that point because right. that's that's. Ninety nine. That's early. That's Web one. We're we're, ta we're talking AOL, Earthlink, Netscape time. Flash. Yeah. Flash. <laughs> Flash was your new career path. Yeah, I remember in like nineteen ninety seven establishing this thing called an email. It was like, whoa, check this out. You can yeah. like see. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was it was way back then, and um, I remember going to uh, <clears throat> the illustration um, department director at the time and telling him that I wanted to be a concept artist and. It felt like they didn't really know what to do with me. So I just kept taking all the classes because my goal was I'm just going to basically get as, as good as possible. I'm going to look at these books and look online and find work that's similar to what I want to do. And then I'm going to create a portfolio based on that work. And so that's kind of what I did. I, I, I used the, the, the time in school to build my skill and then kind of created my own portfolio. You explained it earlier that concept art is creating all of the visual stuff that somebody's going to come up with. But what is the skill set and what defines a concept artist versus, say, a character designer or um, the background designer? Or is it beyond all that? I would say um, a concept artist is, is really somebody who, again, is a professional visual problem solver. In order to do that, you have to have several core skills. Uh, you have to be a high level draftsman. So you have to be able to draw extremely well and not just one thing. You have to be able to draw people and props and vehicles and creatures and environments. Uh, you have to be able to paint at a very high level. Um, full on, you're talking traditional painting. Well, at this, at this, at this stage in the game, um, uh, really traditional painting has gone by the wayside because it's, uh, it's very slow, uh, it's very expensive. So they don't do any of that in studios. Uh, as concept artists, we paint primarily digitally. Okay. In fact, um, the drawing tools, uh, the digital drawing tools have gotten so advanced that most concept artists don't even draw traditionally anymore. Okay. So um, uh, at least not professionally. Um, sometimes I will draw traditionally, but usually what I'll do is I'll transfer that over to a digital medium and then redraw it digitally okay. um, because everything is just so fast and so easy to make changes. <clears throat> but you have to be a high-level draftsman, um, a high-level painter, um, and then you have to understand uh, gestalt principles. So you have to be kind of a psychologist as well. You have to understand... Explain that to me, because that's one. That's the one that you you hear. I mean, I understand it to a point, but that's always that that art term nerd like uh, you just don't understand the gestalt of it. So <laughs> I, uh, I can't talk to you. But what is that? So okay, so back in the 1920s, uh, a bunch of German psychologists got together, and their goal was to try and understand how human beings reacted to certain visual stimuli, line, shape color, value, things like that. 
And so what they discovered was that human beings, regardless of their origin, their background, their culture, reacted to certain types of lines Certain ways, okay. certain types of shapes, certain ways, certain types of colors uh, ev uh, evoked a certain emotional response. And so you could then take certain lines, certain shapes, certain values, and certain colors and put them together in such a way as to create an emotional response from the viewer. For example... Uh, one of the reasons why we look at a character like Jafar mm -hmm. from uh, the Aladdin, the Disney movie, um, and immediately recognize that he's evil is because he's long, he's got all these pointy shapes in his right. design, his, his, his design is primarily red, and it's a darker red. Sure. Um, and so when you see that character, you immediately think this character is a villain. There's a reason why, and it's because when you put together certain lines, shapes, colors, and values, you can get a certain response. Now, when you look at a character like Winnie the Pooh, for example, the reason why you see him as friendly and non-threatening is because he's pre predominantly round and soft shapes. His his uh, He's yellow and red, which are primary colors. Uh, his red is very saturated, which seems kind of fun and childish, you know, kind of like a red balloon or something okay. like that and so you kind of have to understand a, a, a lot about how human beings are going to respond to certain things because if your director gives you um if they give you a a a task and that task is to create um an environment and in the environment, there has to be a temple and it has to seem really ominous and like something very uh dangerous is within that temple. How do you do that? Uh, you see? So you have to then go back to your knowledge of drawing, your knowledge of painting, and your knowledge of uh, human psychology and gestalt principles and put things together in such a way as to evoke that exact re emotional response from the viewer. And what I tell students all the time is a good drawing and a good painting is not necessarily a good design if it does not satisfy the requirements of the story or tell the story that you should be trying to tell for this particular asset. So you have to make sure that not only is it technically well executed with the drawing and painting, but you have also told the right story by using the right combinations of line, shape, color, and value. And not only that, but even something as, uh, I mean, you you know, a, a lot of video people and film people might understand this, but even something like light direction sure. has a powerful emotional impact. And so we study a lot of film um, stuff as well. I have, I have whole classes where we talk about light direction and the emotional impact of light direction and things like that, or, or uh, lighting keys, high key with a low accent, low key with a high accent, mid key, like what, what is the emotional response? So you have to understand all these things because they all are part and parcel when you're trying to create compositions and evoke powerful emotional reactions from the viewer. So let's take a quick break and let me ask you this question. Are you looking for the right school to get in-demand skills in creative industries? You are invited to our upcoming interactive online open house, where you can learn about our over 40 art and design programs, admissions, financial aid, campus life, and more. Our admissions team will also be available via online chat throughout the event to answer whatever questions you may have. RSVP today at academyart.edu slash podcast. So you mentioned that for concept art, it's line, it's form, it's color, it's gestalt. What else makes up concept art? 
some some of the grandfathers or some of the godfathers of concept art were um, <clears throat> they were former industrial designers like Sid Mead, for example, um, uh, Doug Chang, who's uh, I believe uh, one of the uh, the art director at Industrial Light and Magic. Um, he was uh, you know a former industrial designer. So this is this is still a, this is a relatively new pursuit. Yeah, I mean I think I think in the past you know in the 50s and 60s and 70s, they might have called it il an illustrator. Um, but this specific concept art term is something that's, I would say, you know, pretty new within the last 30 years or so. And one of the, but one of the things that made a concept artist different from an illustrator is that the concept artist doesn't just know how to draw and paint. The concept artist also understands a little bit about a lot of things. Okay. You understand how vehicles are constructed, how they work, how they don't work, um, because... Um, you understand some of the things about buildings that most that maybe an architect would understand, but a normal person wouldn't. You understand the difference between post and lentil construction versus an arch. You understand the difference between a Roman arch and a Moorish arch. Okay. Um, the emotional impact of certain architectural elements, like how do people feel when they see domes versus spires versus... Uh, we forget that kind of stuff. Exactly. But see, a concept artist has to know that type of stuff because when a director comes to you and says, says, I want a feeling uh, or building that feels very regal and that feels very uh, awe-inspiring. You know, um, you say, okay, um, I'll try and put domes on the building, see if that works, you okay. see, because that's usually what happens when people see domes. That's why you don't see domes on like regular, like uh, residential dwellings, domestic <laughs> dwellings. You see them on um, mosque and buildings of state and things like that. Um, so a concept artist has to kind of understand these things. Um, they have to understand a little bit about physics, about ergonomics, about the way things work. Uh, when I have students design robots, for example, you know, I always tell them that you have to think about several things. You have to think uh, about uh, the function, uh, the size, the available technology and the locomotion of that particular mech or robot in order for it to be believable because your chief function uh, as a concept artist, is to be able to create assets and and designs that allow the viewer to be able to suspend their disbelief. And in order to do that, you kind of have to understand how things work on, on at least even just a cursory level. You have to understand how things work so that you can apply this knowledge to create believable designs. That, that's funny you said that because you're talking about we have to make mech warriors and robots believable. Correct. But they don't exist, but they do have to be believable. How, how, how do you make something that doesn't exist believable? You have, you have to use like common sense in a lot of ways, like, like apply the laws of physics to your design. So for example, um, one mistake that I see uh, uh, inexperienced designers do is they will make, uh, let's say a mech, for example, and they'll make it re this really bulky, heavy, you know, torso and these really tiny legs with very tiny feet. You know, and little, little chicken leg. Yeah, and and I and I ask them oftentimes when I see stuff like that, I say, hey, um, if you have a big tall bookshelf at the ho at home, do you put your heaviest books on top and your lightest books on the bottom? And they say, well, no, of course not. It'll fall over. You know, you put the encyclopedia on the bottom and you put you know the pictures and the other stuff on the top. And I said, right. So why would you design this this way? Um, when people say, oh, what was I thinking? I tell them you weren't thinking. That's the problem. It looks good. Yeah. It looks scary. But it's not believable. You know, and I tell them. 
even though it's it could be well drawn, it could be well painted, um, it could still be a bad design if it doesn't make sense, if it doesn't allow the viewer to suspend their disbelief, and if it doesn't solve the problem that you were tasked with solving visually. That makes sense. Where it's if it's otherworldly, it still has to be within our realm of how worlds work and how life works. And what else should concept artists think about? A concept artist should should understand that what they're tasked with doing is thinking and problem solving, not just drawing. Um, you have people like illustrators who do like professional illustration and, and you know, they have a certain skill set. And then fine artists have a certain skill set. They're very, a lot of times, very technically, you know, um, uh, adept and they can draw things that look hyper-realistic. Um, but it's just, I've met classical musicians who can play Bach, Beethoven, you know, you name it. But you ask them to play like Hey Jude by the Beatles and they fall apart. Mm. Or you ask them to just compose like a pop song and they fall apart. Because they're very technically adept and proficient. But the minute you ask them to think outside of the box. And strip things away. Right. They don't know what to do. They Got can't it. compose on their own. So, so a lot of times what you find is a lot of classical musicians who are highly trained, very impressive people, can play the most beautiful music, can't compose even simple pop songs because they just never, that part of their brain was never trained. Mm. And so with artists, you have some artists who are very adept, who are very good draftsmen, amazing painters, but they are not good concept artists. And that part of their brain has never been trained. And so what I notice, I notice a lot of people from other countries, especially Asian countries, like tend to struggle with this sometimes because they go to these academies that, you know, they force them to have this high level of skills, but the minute you ask them to create something, um, it, it's very challenging. And then they come here and they go through sort of the education here where we really do train that part of your mind to think and to problem solve. And then, you know, by the end of their time here, they've become amazing concept artists. But there's nothing wrong about being the amazing fine artist illustrator that is creating something hyper-realistic or creating something that is beautiful on its own. It's just, if you're gonna go to concept art, a little different. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, I mean that's a great skill to have, but um, <clears throat> it is, if you can have both, <laughs> the best of <clears throat> both worlds, if you can be a high-level draftsman and painter and <clears throat> a high-level problem solver, then, you know, then you're great. But if you are in a situation where um, you are a high-level draftsman and painter, but you can't problem solve and you don't understand things like gestalt principles and things like, you know, how things work in the world, um, and you're not able to put things together in a way that's believable and makes sense, then it's going to be hard for you to be successful as a concept artist. And so, um, you know, in, in fact, one of the things that people don't realize is that most concept art that's done in studios is not the most beautiful artwork you're ever going to see. Okay. It's a lot of stuff a lot of that stuff never sees the light of day. What we see in sort of these art of books a lot of times tends to be like marketing illustration okay. or the more polished things because they're prettier to look at, but a lot of the stuff that's done so that it can move up the pipeline to the 3D modelers and people like that is stuff that is is literally stuff that you may not ever put in your portfolio but it got the job done. And that's got to be hard for artists when they realize, you know, not everything is a portfolio piece and everything's going to be hung on a gallery wall. 
you know, when you're first starting out, that's one of the big shocks is like, wait, I, I really can make this better. And, you know, the production manager is like, nope, this has to get up the pipeline. Sorry. You know, and they just take it and move along. But the professional concept artist is like, yeah, whatever. And they are not married to any of their designs. They know that they're paid to do a job. They've done the job. It's not the prettiest job, but it satisfied the needs of that, you know, uh, whatever that asset was or the requirement for that particular project. They've met their deadline and they're on to the next thing. But what's important for a student day one after graduation? Now they've got that, that realization like, okay, I'm not going to class today. Now what do I do? You know, some people um, have been fortunate enough to understand the need to work incredibly hard while they were in school and they have honed their skills to the point where they are able to compete in the professional market immediately. For some people, they kind of blow instructors off and blow that advice off until sometimes junior, senior year when they really decide to get serious. And then they wake up the day after graduation and realize they're not ready to compete. And that is nobody's fault but their own. Um, But either way, you know, the day after you graduate, you have to realize um, nobody owes you anything. Nobody in the industry is going to roll out the red carpet simply because you have a piece of paper that says that you are a graduate of the Academy of Art University or whatever school you came from. There's nobody's going to roll. Oh, you just graduated. Please welcome to our world. Here is your check. Yeah, we have a desk waiting right here for you. Your skill set doesn't matter. You've graduated. You are special. That doesn't matter. What matters is your portfolio because your portfolio exhibits your skill set. Um And so the day after graduation, they should be immediately honing their skills and working on their portfolio to make sure that they can compete at a professional level. Artists, especially if they're doing digital work, what does that mean to be able to compete with? Is it a mindset or a quality of skill or or a combination of the two? What separates somebody from I've graduated and I'm ready to go to I am employable? I think it's definitely a con- it's all of the above. It's you know you have to have uh, the right attitude because I always tell people um, that attitude affects your altitude. Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you are entitled, if you feel like you're owed something, if you feel like you don't have to work hard or you don't have to, you know, that you should just walk in and get a check and be treated special because you're an artist, um, you're going to be in for a rude awakening. And what I've seen that's become more prevalent uh, over the last few years is this very strange phenomenon of people thinking that they should be promoted or handed something just because they've shown up. And it's, it's a lot of young people in their, in their early, early and mid-20s. I'm starting to see this very weird mentality of, of sort of entitlement, this expectation that they should just be given things. And that is not how it works in the art world. You have to earn Every single thing that you get in the art world must be earned. And the art world has this very cruel way of correcting things because a lot of times people um, in, in you know, the professional world can, can fail up if they make friends with the right people or if they're in with the right crowd. It doesn't matter you know, what their performance is. Sometimes they can still move up. And we've all seen situations like that and it's very frustrating and we all grumble behind their backs, but we can do nothing about it. But the art world kind of has a way of correcting that. And that's when that project ends 
and everybody gets laid off, you're all starting from scratch trying to get that next job. Right. So yeah. the art world is cyclical. And this is why I always tell people, no matter where you are, whether you are the uh, intern um, or a production assistant, or whether you are the lead artist or the director or art director, you have to always treat people well and work hard and be a good person. Because 10 years from now, that intern that you mistreated, that you talked down to, could be the person that's making the decision on whether or not you get hired on to this new film. So you always have to treat people well, you always have to have a good attitude, and you always have to um, put your best foot forward because your reputation precedes you. Um, I'll give you an example. I was working at a, a video game company, which uh, I won't say, um, and there was uh, I was sharing the cube with, with a guy, um, and uh, one of the lead artists came in and said, hey, so-and-so, uh, you worked at you know this place, and he said, yeah. And he goes, uh, do you know so-and-so? And he said, yeah. And he goes, yeah, his work's pretty good. He's a solid 3D artist. His, uh, you know, his stuff is, is, is amazing. He goes, yeah, he's a really good artist. He goes, okay. He goes, what, what's he like? Uh, he's a total knob, man. The guy was oh. a complete jerk, a douchebag, and just badmouthed the guy. Oh, no. So when, when he was just asking him about his artwork, he was saying, oh, yeah, yeah, guy's amazing. But when he asked about what he was like to work with, he was just apparently a, not a nice person. Uh -huh. And uh, the lead artist said, wow, okay, well, well, thank you very much. And, and, and Homeboy never got on. Oh, man. So, so he was about to get hired at this company that we were working at um, because he, was, he could do the job. Sure. But because somebody told him that he was a complete and total jerk, that's what stopped him from getting the job. Yeah, it's funny, you know, because, I mean, I, I've – been a camera operator and and freelance shooter for most of my career and th that always comes up where it's like the job is one skill set but I've got to spend 12 hours a day with this person. Do I want to spend 12 hours a day with this person? And no, I don't. Or yeah, that guy's a great hang. That's going to be a person I can hang right. out with. That'll make life easy. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's something that, uh, you know, it, it, there's got to be, somebody's got to make a class on that. You know, uh, there's a new term that I've been hearing over the last couple of years. It's called soft skills. Um, those are the soft skills, like the hard skills are the drawing and the painting and the designing, but the soft skills are just being able to interact with people right. in a healthy way, in a positive way, being a positive person, handling um, uh, challenges in a way that is conducive to continuing to build your team and grow and, and get this project done, you know. Um, and a lot of people neglect to develop that part of their skill set. And what I always tell people is, if you are called into an interview at a game company, they're not trying to find out at that point whether or not you can do the job. They have already determined that you can do the job based on your portfolio and that your skill set is something that they would want uh, in their, in their, on their team. If you are called in for an interview, is for one reason and one reason alone, and it is to see if you are a jerk or not. Mm. Because they have to make that decision as well as to whether or not they want to work with you 10 right. to 12 hours a day. What, in your experience, do you think students should be either learning or thinking about um, before they make that first step into art school? Uh, you know, it's it, the mindset has to be, they have to understand what they're getting themselves into. Um, a lot of students will come to 
um, art school and have the same attitude that they would have if they were going to a traditional academic institution like UC Berkeley or, you know, University of Florida or whatever, you know, UCLA. I'm a a liberal arts major. It doesn't matter what I'm taking. Right. Um, And what I tell them is, is we call you students because you are enrolled at a school, but it's kind of a misnomer in some ways because really you're, you're, you're more like an apprentice in a craft. Okay. Um, You're trying to develop a skill. And there are times when you are in school and there are times when you are not in school, but there is never really a time where you have a break. You have to constantly, whether you are in school during the semester or whether you are on break or whether you are at your parents' house back in Ohio for the summer, you have to constantly be working on honing your craft. And one of the most ridiculous things that I would hear when I was in school and I still occasionally hear it today is... Yeah, I haven't drawn at all since last semester. Like to me, that is the wow. the literal, literally the dumbest thing that you could do is just put your pencil down. You know, <clears throat> fall semester's over in December, and you don't pick up a pencil till February. Like, how silly is that? You know, you have just you know, it's this is a perishable skill. This is not like riding a bike. It is use it or lose it. That's the type of skill that we have. And so you have to constantly be trying to sharpen your sword. You have to constantly be sharpening your skills and developing your craft. And if you have the apprentice mindset, that is what will carry the day. But if you think that you're a student and you can go and take your classes and, whoo, I'm done with finals. Let me sell back my books and go to, you know, party with everybody down in Cancun or whatever it is that kids do nowadays. Um, You're going to have a rude awakening. And those are the people who come to me senior year and they're like, I'm not ready. I'm not going to be ready. What do I got to do, Michael? I'll listen to you. I'll do anything you tell me. And I'm like, man, I told you this two years ago, kid, and you didn't want to listen. And now here you are coming, you know, coming to the realization that you cannot compete at the professional level and you want to make up for three years of being, you know, uh, of half-hearted efforts. Yeah, of being lazy, of not being focused. You want to all get it done in one year. It's not going to happen, dude. It's going to take you some time, probably even after you graduate, to get your skill level up. Uh, but you can do it. You know, it's at least you've gotten here. At least you're cognizant and aware of what you need to be doing. Now it's just a matter of you do it. It doesn't mean, though, that you're going to be ready right after school. So day one, when you walk in, if you go, if you, if you move away from the student mindset and have the apprentice mindset, that is what will help you be more successful than other people. You know, what, what does a student need to surround him or herself with uh, when they make this choice to go to art school? Because I know you and I had talked about, um, and a lot of instructors, you know, we always feel this way. And when we work with people that are new, that, you know, a lot of people look now that art school is a last resort. And we don't want that. That's, that's not the case because, you know, if you're doing concept and video games, art schools and art is far more viable than it was 20 years ago. So what, what should a student and their support staff or their support, their, their families, what should they be thinking about when that student's in art school? What, what, what should they be doing? The first thing that, that um, a family and a support network needs to do for an art student is not make them feel like they're doing this because they can't do anything else but to encourage them and to support them to pursue their passion, to pursue something that will make them happy. 
Um, because at the end of the day, no matter what mom thinks or what dad thinks or whether or not they think this is a stable career or there's more stability elsewhere, what they have to realize is that the only person who really has to wake up every day and live this life is this student. So they have to support them to pursue a path that will allow them to live a life that will help them to be fulfilled and to be happy going forward. And that may not look like what the mom or dad uh, has in their opinion as a, the vision that they have for their child going forward. It may look like um, them going to the School of Game Development and studying with Michael Buffington and becoming a concept artist. You know, um, Unfortunately, I've had a lot of students who have had to fight an uphill battle with a lot of people who don't support them and who tell them that they're wasting their time and that you know they're going to be a failure and that you know they're completely wasting their money and they're not going to support them and they're not going to help them wow. and you know it's it, students come into the school with a lot of emotional baggage and it makes it really difficult for them to grow artistically because they're they're so um, they hear this sort of shame-based voice in their head telling them that they're going to fail and and this really unsupportive voice that is on loop usually in their mind. And so they're a lot harder on themselves than they are, um, than they would be had they gotten more support. Um, or the other thing that you see is when they get a critique and it's not a totally positive critique, it's really hard for them to 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 take that in stride and they get really down and really beat themselves up. Um, or they 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 really uh, you know attack the professor for giving them a, a tough critique um, because they just can't handle hearing it because they hear this negative voice constantly from home. So it's really important that they're supported, that <clears throat> they're loved, and that they're told that their their value as a human being isn't conditional. That it's not it's not you're not just valuable if you go and become a doctor or a lawyer or a nurse or whatever. You know, you are valuable because you exist. And if part of your existence is that you choose to pursue the path of an artist or that you choose to be a musician or whatever, then so be it. We still love you. We might not totally understand or even agree, but we're still going to love you regardless. And we're going to help you get to where you want to go as long as it makes you happy. And what a lot of people don't realize is this whole starving artist, you know, uh, stereotype that, that has been around for, for ages is really not true. If you're a highly skilled person, somebody somewhere will pay you some money to do what it is that you love. And, and there are many artists, especially in game development, that are making six figures. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So this is not a lot of the people who, who tried to dissuade me from pursuing the path that I wanted to pursue uh, with art and music. I made more money than most of those people, if not all of them. You see what I'm saying? And I get up every morning and I draw and I paint and I make music for a living. This is what I do for a living. I make, I draw and paint and 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 I'm the concept art lead during the day. And at night I go home with my band and I make music and we have a single that's getting ready to drop next week and on a very big distribution uh, with a very big distribution company. And I'm living the life that I always wanted to live when I was a teenager. And it was primarily because my mother and father, in spite of all of the negative voices that were trying to dissuade me from pursuing that path, they actually kind of um, helped mitigate those voices by telling me, no, 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 if this is what you want to do, do it. You know, so that's really what they need um, in terms of from their family. But when they get to school, they need something else entirely. And that, that is they need to find a, a support group.
to help them because art can be a very isolating experience. Um, you're alone for hours drawing or painting, and it can sometimes be very frustrating. You can feel discouraged very easily. And a lot of times people can give up um, when they don't have a good support network at school. And that's one of the biggest reasons why I created Drawholics Anonymous. Drawholics seems like a dream situation. I mean, I was reading about that and I met some of the students who did. I'm like, you guys are getting to do what? You're getting to do this with full support of a university behind you? I mean, exp explain Drawholics to me because I think it's, it's just fascinating. So um, <clears throat> about, uh, about two and a half years ago, three years ago, um, I started to notice this very uh this very strange aversion to traditional drawing and so um everybody thought you know i'm just gonna show up do concept art there's gonna be a make art button on the computer i'm gonna hit it and then everything's <laughs> gonna come out like that first page of artstation when you hit artstation.com uh -huh. and it's like and everything is awesome they figure it's that easy right if you learn a little bit of 3d and collage some photos and learn how to paint a little bit and that's all that i need to do i don't need to draw on paper anymore and so i said okay this is a problem how do i get people to become excited again about traditional drawing on paper and how do i change the overall mentality and mindset and create a culture of excellence and 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 you know improve or increase this this level of skill amongst all the people who are in concept art and the school as a whole um and i said you know what i'm going to start a group i'm going to start a group called the draw uh, Hawks anonymous and it's it's going to be like the special forces of the academy of art they're going to be like the green berets or the the navy seals or or whatever and um in order to do this what i did was i said okay i'm going to create a contract anybody who wants to join has to sign a contract that stipulates that from the date that they sign that contract they have to do 2500 drawings oh in gosh. one year they have to do 1,000 head sketches, 500 legs, 500 arms, 250 hands, 250 feet. And not only that, but they also have to be a part of the community. They have to bring something positive to the community. Um, and so I created this contract and I began to go around to classrooms, one classroom after another in my own classes and sort of pitch this idea to all of the students. And many people say, ooh, that's too much. That's and, numbers. Yeah, I don't know what yeah. that means. And so, you know, and, and, you know, Bruce Lee said those who say they can and those who say they cannot are both right. So a lot of people right from the beginning said, no, 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 I can never do that. That's too much. That's impossible. And then there were some people that said, okay, I'll do it. I'll try it. And um, what started to happen was, you know, we, we started having a weekly workshop. We started having other little events, little fun sort of drawing challenges mm -hmm. where people would show up and break up into groups. Right. And you guys were going around the city. Yeah. We were going and doing sketch crawls. And, and it was it just became something uh, it, it, larger than life. It became something much bigger than what I had intended it to be, which was just to create a group of people that were all serious and kind of raise the, 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 or create a culture of uh, excellence and raise sort of this skill set um, within the student body. Yeah, I mean, there were students that were telling me this and I'm going, that's, that's like a dream. This is like, this is something you see in a movie about artists. Yeah. This is not what artists get to do anymore. Well, you know, the thing is, is it's, you know, I don't even, I mean, we, we call it a club at the school, but it's really more than that. It's, I, it's a community. 
You know, I refer to the drawholics as my drawing family. Um, and, um, you know, I spend a lot of time with them, much more time than I would normally spend with students in a class because I'm in these workshops with right. them. I'm in there drawing with them. Oh, wow. I go to the sketch calls with them sometimes. I, um, I do a lot with them outside of school because, you know, my interacting with them is part of what helps uh, the community grow, you know, because they can, you know, they have a lot of, um, um, you know, time with me mentoring them. Sure. Um, and so, no, but the, the coolest thing that, it, that it's done is it's brought a lot of people together that would normally not hang out and would normally would normally not even know each other. Like you said before, I mean, in 10 years, five years, 20 years, you're working with these people. Hopefully, hopefully right. you're all working together again and you need to know you need to build your community now, not later. Absolutely. I mean, a lot of the people that that together that are together working in Drawholics are are um, people that are you know going to go on to uh, work together in the professional world. They're going to start companies together. I mean, because it creates this camaraderie. And over and over, what you have people hear people saying is, "I have more friends now being a part of Drawholics than I've ever had in my entire life." Oh, that's that's. That's the most important part about yeah. being an artist, I think. Absolutely. You know, I mean, it's it's you can't draw in a vacuum. It do, it shouldn't be an isolating experience. It should be sort of a communal experience. And the reason why is because you know when you're discouraged, there's going to be a whole group of people that are going to rally around you to encourage you. When you're uh, concerned about you know whether or not you're you're making the right choices, there's going to be people that can help guide you and mentor you. Um, uh, it it actually does something really cool where it takes people. Who maybe they're freshmen. This is their very first semester, first week, and they go to Drawholics and they begin to interact with people who are MFA students and juniors and seniors who are way further along in life than they are, and they they can create bonds, create friendships, and I've seen it happen over and over, and it makes people better for it. And it's kind of a two way thing because this freshman who's just coming in, uh, their their growth process is expedited by the guidance and mentorship that they get from the older students, and then the people who are doing the mentoring are being becoming better artists because they're mentoring younger people and right. teaching them sort of while they're still in school. So it's right. kind of, I mean, it has this, it's, it's sort of like this, this reciprocal, you know, this thing. nice ecosystem of, of art. Absolutely. And, and, you know, like I said, it brings people together, you know, because they all have a common, I mean, there's so much division now in, in the world and in this country and anything that brings people together, that helps people push aside all of their differences and bring them together is a good thing. And what Drawholics does is it brings people together because they all love art. Like I have this one, I always like to tell a story. I have this one student who's very goth. And if you were to see her, you would you might be intimidated by her at first sight. Very tall, very goth looking, wears all black all the time. And um, the, the typical art student. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then and then I have this this other student, very devout Christian. Okay. And these two are like freaking frat. Like they're always hanging out. They're like really buddy-buddy and really get along really well. And were it not for Draw Hawks, they might not have ever even spoken to each other. So what it does is it brings people together from vastly different you know, walks of life um, and 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 they all come together because they love drawing. And you know, so it's been it's been a beautiful thing. We have uh, well over 300 members at this point from uh, many different departments. We have people uh, obviously from game concept art, but also from visual development, from illustration, from animation. We've even got some graphic designers, um, web designers, like people just hear about it and they just want to come and be a part of it. 
you know, and um, and uh, the school has thrown their full support behind Drawhawks Anonymous, and it's really, you know, it's helped people, um, you know, w- within a very short time grow and take leaps and bounds in ways that they would not have been able to had Drawhawks Anonymous not existed. I mean, the proof is in the pudding, and we have this uh, on the eighth floor at 180 New Montgomery. There's a, a hall that we call the Hall of Improvement. And what I do is I show before and afters of when somebody started the 2500 challenge and when they finish. And a lot of times I'll show this to people and they'll say, how many years did it take them to get from A to B? And I tell them, no, 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 this isn't years. This is months. Oh my gosh. It took them months to make this leap oh, that's so because awesome. that's what being a part of something like Draw Hogs Anonymous does. I'm going to stop it there because I can't, I mean, you're going to make me go out to the art store and buy pencils which is just a slippery slope back into danger. That's the goal, man. That's the goal. (laughs) All right, Michael, a pleasure. Thank you so very much. Very welcome. So hopefully that's inspired you to run to the store or dig around in boxes you have and get some pencils, some pens, crayons, whatever you got, and start world building for you to animate, for you to tell a story with, for you to express yourself artistically. Because if you've ever dreamed about a career in art and design, now is a perfect opportunity as more and more employers are on the hunt for the next generation of talented and skilled creative professionals. At the Academy of Art University, you will get the work-ready skills that employers want. You can study on-site in downtown San Francisco or, more importantly, anywhere in the world with our online programs. To request more information about our 40-plus areas of study in art and design, including game development, fashion design, photography, UX design, and more, visit our website at academyart.edu 